there's nothing better than a founder to revel in the joy that an organization that you founded is actually thriving after you leave and is bigger and better and visionary. And that's a great feeling. Welcome to the Responsive Nonprofit Podcast, brought to you by Virtuous. Responsive nonprofits are the organizations thriving in today's ever-changing fundraising landscape, leading with innovation to grow giving and impact. Join us each week in spirited conversation with the leading voices across philanthropy, fundraising, and nonprofit technology. Subscribe on your favorite station or visit us over at www.virtuous.org backslash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Virtuous. Are you stuck using outdated, slow, and redundant technology to power your nonprofit? It's time to make the switch. Virtuous gives your organization the fundraising, volunteer, and marketing tools you need to create a more responsive donor experience and grow giving. Want to learn more? Get a personalized demo today at virtuous.org demo. That's virtuous.org demo. Welcome back to the Responsive Nonprofit Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Maya Ajmira, President and CEO of Society for Science and Executive Publisher for Science News Media Group. Thrilled to have a dynamic conversation today about a life led in philanthropy, as well as the innovation that Maya has led over the course of her career, especially since 2014 at Society for Science. Maya, welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Excited to dive in. And I think where I'd really love to start is I'd love to rewind the clock. And I know that you've had a 30 plus year career deep in the world of philanthropy. And I'd love to know where did this journey start for you? What is your origin story that inspired you to lead this life and spend your career in this field? Well, you know, I am the daughter of Indian immigrants. My parents immigrated here from India, and I was born in Iowa City, Iowa, but then brought up in eastern North Carolina. And I was brought up in the South, and I had lots of trips back to to India to visit extended family. So, you know, when they ask me, how do I see myself? I say I'm a Southerner first, American second, you know, Indian third, and fourth global citizen, right? But yes, I'm an American Southerner, as they say. I'm the daughter of a physicist, and my father was a physicist, and my mother an entrepreneur. And so I took both of those sorts of qualities, I think. But, you know, being in an Indian household, I was supposed to go to medical school, right? So science Mm -hmm. became a very big part of my life very early on. I read science magazine, saw Nova, did science fair projects. And so I'll come back to that in a second, but I went through a whole scientific process, right? And went on to Bryn Mawr College where I majored in neuroscience. And then I got a fellowship that allowed me to travel to South and Southeast Asia, a Rotary graduate fellowship. Mm. And I traveled from Thailand to Pakistan for a year. And it was in India 
at a train platform where I say I had my moment of obligation. At this train platform, I saw 50 kids sitting in a circle learning how to read and write. And a teacher told me that these children lived on and around the train platform. They worked, Mm. they played, they also begged, but they didn't go to school. So a social entrepreneur each day brought, as she said, a basket of magic with slates and chalk and got one kid, then two, then four, then eight. And these kids came and she created a platform school. I asked her, what does it cost to run one of these schools? And she said, at that time, it cost $500. And it was there that I had that moment of obligation of how do you get small amounts of capital into the hands of really innovative grassroots organizations and help them become scalable and sustainable? When I was 22 years old, it was pretty simple. It was like, how do I help? And how come I don't see more train platform schools all over India? I ended up putting off an MD-PhD, and I ended up going to the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke. Mm. And I started studying education, international development, statistics, economics, And it was there that I had this idea of founding the Global Fund for Children, of bringing small amounts of capital into the hands of really innovative grassroots organizations. I also wanted to start a children's book publishing venture, a social enterprise. And I founded a children's book publishing unit. And I led that organization for 18 years. And we invested millions of dollars in really innovative organizations from secret homeschools for girls in Afghanistan to schools for AIDS orphans in Uganda to working with waste pickers called now recyclers and their children to be able to get an education, but really focusing on innovative organizations at the community led Mm. by proximate leaders. So I basically, after 18 years, I decided it was time for any founder that they needed to let go, right? Mm. Founders need to move on from the organizations they founded. And it was a baby that had grown into adolescence that it was now off to college. And it was like, it's time to to go. And it was not easy, Mm. but I ended up taking a sabbatical and teaching at Duke University, as well as um, the School for Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins, and wrote a book. And I also, my husband and I started a family. I want to just say one thing, though, as a founder of an organization, is that there's nothing better. It's now been 10 years since I left the Global Fund for Children, and the organization to date has invested nearly $60 million in over a thousand innovative NGOs throughout the world. There's nothing better than a founder to revel in the joy that an organization that you founded is actually thriving. Thriving after, yeah. After you leave and is bigger and better and visionary. And I just want to put that out there that that's a great feeling, right? So I'll leave it at that. That's where I got my start in philanthropy. There's some great stories I can, I can only tell you. Imagine. There are two great stories around Global Fund for Children on around individual philanthropy 
that I can certainly share. Um, I'd, I'd love that. And even before you do, I think I just, the thing that comes to heart for me is I want to applaud you and I want to say thank you because we need more leadership in philanthropy, giving full autonomy and ownership to the voices and people on the ground that know how to address the solutions to the problems that they face. And the way that you've uplifted local communities, civil society, local grassroots leadership, there's a ripple effect in terms of how we change the world. The fact that you, you've you led that and you've been doing that for as long as you have makes you a pioneer on that front. And well, well, thank you. So I want to say thank you and I want to applaud you for that work because well, well, it's just, it's incredible. It's, you know, I never thought when we started the journey that it would end up where it's at because most folks looked at us like we were insane. Yeah. But it takes it takes only one or two or three people to really get that vision off the ground. One was Equine Green, which invests in social entrepreneurs at the seed capital stage. And they invested in my in my vision at the age of 22 or 23 with $25,000 in seed capital. My next story is, which is a great one, is I was bumped on to business class on a flight and I was three years into the organization. And the first thing I founded was our children's book publishing unit because I was really in this mode of like, we're going to found a children's book publishing unit and we're going to be like Harry Potter and we're going to make millions of dollars and then we're going to put it to all these community-based organizations. My first book was Children from Australia to Zimbabwe. And I sat next to a gentleman and we started talking. And he said, well, what do you do? I said, oh, I just started a nonprofit and I'm writing a children's book. He said, well, what's the children's book? I said, it's children from Australia to Zimbabwe. He goes, oh, like A is for Australia. I'm like, right. And he said, B is for Botswana. I'm like, no. He goes, Brazil. I'm like, right. I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I work for Morgan Stanley. And I was like, oh, are you one of those dime a dozen brokers or VPs? Like, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm the chairman of Morgan Stanley. I'm Richard B. Fisher. I was like, oh, that's nice. What's the country that starts with with C? Didn't matter to me, right? He was having fun guessing countries down my alphabet book, and we got to O. And I said, well, think. I, he says, I can't think of what the country is with O. And he, I said, well, think of a lot of oil. He goes, oh, it's Oman. And he kept guessing down, and we got to X, and he said, Maya, there isn't a country that starts with X. I said, well, Mr. Fisher, you have to be a six-year-old and stretch your mind to the very outer limits of imagination. And he said, it's Xanadu. I said, that's right. The poem from Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the famous magical city called Xanadu in inner China. So he ended up becoming an angel donor to us. Wow. When Children from Australia was published, I wrote him a letter. I did never thought he would ever respond. He responded. I went to the top floor of Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. I handed him the book. And he said, I said, you don't remember me. He goes, oh, of course I remember you. <laughs> and and he said, sit down. And so I, to I told him about the vision of the Global Fund for Children. And he said, well, how can I help? Mm. And he became a major donor to us. Wow. And then the flip side of another story is one day I got a letter on pink stationery and it was a letter with big scrawly handwriting. And it said, dear Maya Shmira, my name is Mary Hewlett and I really love your children's books. 
And these are the reasons why. And I basically put the letter away. And then one day I got a letter from a family foundation saying, on behalf of Miss Mary Hewlett, she'd like to give you a grant. Mm. Wait a minute. What? Yeah. Yeah. And I called the foundation and they said, Maya, we've been following your work. I was like, who are you? And they said, "Uh, Mm. have you ever heard of Hewlett Packard? I'm like, yes. My printer's a Hewlett Packard sitting next to me. And they said, well, this is a family foundation started by the Hewlett family. Wow. And I said, well, can I guess how old this this person is? And they're like, she 10, 12? It's like, she's eight. So she gave her very first grant from her family foundation wow. to the Global Fund for Children. So those are two, like, here's someone very young and here's someone more of, he's been quite established in his career going towards this vision, right? Which gave me such momentum mm. and belief in the work that we were doing. So I ended up, right, I at 18 years, I left Global Fund for Children. I wrote a book called Invisible Children, really looking at the role of community-based organizations and what I had learned in practice and putting that on paper of what was so important about that. And then lo and behold, I get a call and saying, Maya, there's an organization and the board of directors, trustees would really like to talk to you. Hmm. And it's called the Society for Science. And they're best known for their world-class science competitions, science talent search being one of them, and science news. And they said, we're calling you because you are a Westinghouse science talent search kid. I competed. I did science fair and I read science news. And I said, you know that I haven't, I told the recruiter, I said, you know that I haven't done science since I graduated from, from Bryn Mawr college with a neuroscience degree. My last published paper was my senior year in high school on brain research. They're like, yes, but the trustees would like to talk to you. And so I wrote them a long letter as to why, you know, I mostly about my nonprofit work and what I'd done And they interviewed me and going into that interview room, my heart fell because it Mm. was seven elderly gentlemen, right? But I wanted to go into that interview because I wanted to meet Dr. Bob Horvitz, Nobel Prize winner, Mm -hmm. whose research I had read about in my developmental neurobiology class in college. And I said, if anything else, I get to meet Bob Horvitz, right? Well, there was Craig Barrett, the former CEO and chairman of Intel. There's Bob Horvitz. There's Alan Leshner, the the CEO of AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And they interviewed me. And I told them my story, like I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think I had a chance, but I walked out saying, okay, I gave it my best. And they called back and said, we want to talk to you again. And then they said, this job is yours and we're willing to wait six months because I was teaching at Hopkins. And what they wanted was this. Look, the Society for Science was founded by E.W. Scripps and W.E. Ritter 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. We just celebrated our centennial. E.W. Scripps and W.E. Ritter were very concerned about what they were reading in newspapers about three-legged Martians and other wild things that had nothing to do with science. And they said, we need to create the first cadre of science journalists Mm. in this country. 
And they founded Science News. In the early 1940s with World War II, the leaders became very concerned about talent. Who is going to lead our country with scientific talent and protect our country? So Mm. they founded Science Talent Search. And that became, the sponsor for that became Westinghouse for 50 years. Yeah. And then they founded the International Science and Engineering Fair in 1950. And so they basically told me, Maya, we've got some problems here at the Society for Science. Like all magazines and newspapers, science news is dropping. Its subscribership is dropping. The advertising is dropping. We have to stop the bleeding. So that's one. Mm. Two, Intel had been our sponsor of Science Talent Search and the International Science and Engineering Fair for 25 years. And they were now looking to pull their sponsorship. They were like, you know, we've done this a long time. And so I also, I said, wow, they said, we really need you to come in and put on your entrepreneurial hat and really think about how we move this organization forward. I also put on my social justice hat on and said, okay, I'm willing to do this, but we have to make sure that every young person in this country has the opportunity to become a scientist or engineer if that's what they want to be when they grow up. Equity became very important Uh coming in in 2014. And so if they told me everything at that moment, I don't know if I would have <laughs> taken on that job, taken on the, the job. They were very savvy in the way they told me about Challenges. what was going on. And they're smart, right? I'm really glad I did. But when I look back on it, it's kind of like, whoa. So let's take them into chunks. Maybe you have some questions for me, but I can take you into chunks of how philanthropy moved this this work forward. Yeah, I mean I I think that's great. I mean I'd love to write it's like you're come you're coming into an environment where you're losing subscribers, you've lost your title sponsor, right? These are these are big harrowing challenges that have a lot of inertia. So I think I'm curious even just to pull back the layers of that to say where did you start? What was your process for okay, those challenges are identified, but then how did you like, what was your process from moving from, and everything from a, a strategic standpoint to even activating your team? Once those were identified, how did you move into solving those problems? So let's take the science talent search, for example. Okay. The science talent search is the oldest, most prestigious science competition for high school seniors. It had two title sponsors when I came on, Westinghouse for 50 years, Intel for 25 I considered it America's crown jewel. When you looked at the alumni from the Science Talent Search, we had over 12 Nobel Prize winners, MacArthur Prize winners, those that had created companies like Amgen, Biogen, tech companies. So I went to the board and and thought of something, came up with an idea. I said, I don't feel like putting out my tin cup and Mm. begging funders to support this. I said, we're going to turn it around on its head and we're going to ask for a request for proposal from companies and philanthropists that if they want to be part of this, the sponsor, they Mm. have to apply. And everyone gulped. I said, we have to use the media. And we were very lucky 
not lucky. We worked hard, but they, the New York Times wrote a fabulous piece on look on Intel stepping down as the sponsor of this oldest, most prestigious science competition. And it was on the front page of the New York Times on digital. I mean, it got a lot wow. of, of play. And we had 50 philanthropists and companies that were interested in applying. We narrowed it down to 10 companies that put in letters of interest. Mm -hmm. And of those, we got five full proposals. Wow. They had to write full proposals to us. And some were like, we don't do that. I'm like, okay, well, if you don't do it, you can't be, you can't, I can't do anything. Like you have yeah, to. So you, you, you have in one fell swoop flipped the solicitation model. <laughs> that's incredible. Oh, that's amazing. So what like were in those proposals? Like what were the requirements and things that you were looking for in order for someone to be selected to be your title sponsor? Passion, vision, what the company or philanthropist was going to do not only in terms of investment in the science talent search, but also how they were going to bring their people to the table. Mm. It was about thinking about how do we make sure every young person can become a scientist or engineer? It wasn't only about the most talented kids, but how do you build the pipeline for future scientific and engineering talent in this country? What was going to be their access. communications play? So out of those five, we selected and it's a beautiful story. We selected the company Regeneron, the biotech company Regeneron. The two guys that co-founded the organization, Len Schleifer and George Yankopoulos, are Westinghouse Science Talent Search kids. And they felt very compelled that this was really important for their company, but they had gone through it themselves and they provided an extraordinary proposal and put a hundred million dollars on the table for the sponsorship. Wow. So and there were other companies, there were others that were not far behind them, by the yeah. way. Yep. But what we saw with them was the fact that they were two alums from our competition and had built this company. Actually, George's project was on the regeneration of cells, and here's the company name called Regeneron. I mean, it's just a remarkable story. And they have been extraordinary partners in this journey with us. We're in our, we just finished our, we're going to finish our seventh year in the partnership. Wow. Um, and was and, it a 10-year partnership, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. yes. Wow. And then they took on the sponsorship of the International Science and Engineering Fair as well, the title sponsorship. So Incredible. it is, you know, it does work. It can work. It's just you have to swallow. And mm. we were in the right time at the right moment. This was during the era of the Obama administration that was mm -hmm. very pro science. He was doing, you know, had science fair at the White House. I mean, President Obama, as a senator, he used to come out and hang with our science talent search kids. And and um, the science talent search kids visited the president many times during his administration. And by the way, we've had every president meet with the science talent search kids, the except kids. the last administration, but everyone has met with the kids. So I, I am just, it's an extraordinary story. And I 
I still kind of go, wow, that that model actually worked, disrupting mm. a way of because it really would have been putting my tin cup and negotiating yeah. like everything we had to do. And I said, no, it's this has got to change in terms of this is America's crown jewel. Mm. And and they've also Regeneron has changed us as an institution. They have made us stronger and better mm. and more forceful. And so I owe them a great deal. And I'm sure, and they're all actually doing so much in terms of getting kids to come intern at, mm-hmm. at Genron. They are having scientists come speak to kids, right? They are doing a lot on their end to really engage their employees around the next generation of scientific talent. And just seeing the diversity of that talent happen over the last seven years has been fabulous. So I'm really excited by that. The next piece is Science News Media Group. So (laughs) we were bleeding. And Mm. I was told literally in my second week of the job, in pretty stark terms, either you have to shut Science News down or sell it or make it sustainable. And you have 18 months to show us a plan of how you're going to do it. And I was like, whoa. And then I started thinking just about what I had been reading about teachers needing excellent scientific content in their classrooms, Mm. that teachers were using very old science textbooks and science was changing rapidly. I said, well, let's go and think about getting science news into high schools and for teachers to use it. And I went to a visionary corporate foundation called Mm -hmm. Arconic Foundation. It used to be Alcoa, and then they split into Arconic and Helmet. It's Arconic Foundation and led by an extraordinary leader there, Ryan Keish. We basically said to them, we want to test something out. We want to see if science news will be used by teachers in their high schools. And we did a pilot test and we did it in I believe 200 schools, and it 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 was like wildfire. They really mm. enjoyed using it. And then through the Regeneron sponsorship and other corporate sponsors in philanthropy, Science News in high schools from 250 high schools is now in nearly 6,000 high schools across the country with wow. a teacher community, a STEM teacher community of 18,000 STEM teachers reaching about over 6 million young people. And what they do is they get science news every two weeks, and then they get a teaching guide of how to teach it. And every year, the teachers have to apply again to get it for their classrooms, but it's sponsored and they're using it. That has become a saving grace for us. But also we started a middle school magazine called Science News Explorers because we heard from teachers in this program now called Science News Learning, that we need excellent science content in our middle school. And so we had a digital product called Science News for Students. We changed it called Science News Explorers, and we now have a paper magazine. Amazing. That's a compendium to Science News called Science News Explorers. So look, the media business is hard. Yeah. Talk to my publisher, Michael Voss, and we still sweat beads, right? Like we need more subscribers. We need 
more digital eyeballs, right? But the millions of dollars in the red that we were experiencing a, mm. between 2008 to 2013, 14, that's nowhere. I mean, and the other thing we've done, which was pretty, I, I just, we had to do it, is we had 70, 60, 70,000 subscribers. I wrote them a letter as a publisher mm. and said, news is dying. You have to help us, not only with the $50 subscription, but give us $50 more. We built an individual donor base. Like when I came at the society, we may have had less than 1,000 donors. We now have nearly 9,000 donors, individual donors, a lot of them coming from our subscribership, many mm -hmm. coming from our alumni. Many of them have become major donors. So philanthropy is now a, a very important piece to science news media group. It's not only subscription and advertising and licensing, which is which covers a good half of our costs, maybe less. And then the rest is philanthropy now. Wow. As I'm just listening and learning, I think there's just like, there's a few, I just want to bubble up like a few things that I'm just like, sure. like observing in real time. And they're just, I think they're just, they're powerful reminders for me. I hope that they're powerful reminders for the folks that are listening. And I actually want to go back to your first story real quick. And it's actually been a thread through all the stories that you've told, but like you have been through your whole life and career, you have had your heart and your passion five feet out in front of you. And I think it's so powerful that like where you are today is because of something that you did years ago in your own education. The title sponsors that have come to the table through your disruptive process are at the table because they have a personal experience that transformed and impacted their lives. And it's just that constant reminder of how personal giving is. And I think, I think what's really powerful is like, your the way that you flipped the model as opposed to putting out the, the the tin jar, the way that you flipped your solicitation model to find your next title sponsor, you actually opened up an opportunity for for people to share their own heart, to share their own passion, to share the thing that changed and impacted them that allowed them the opportunity to build an incredibly successful biotech company. right? And so it's like it, I just see this sort of full circle, story that's kind of layered throughout your whole journey. And it's not just your journey, it's the journey of your donors, your supporters, your trustees. And it's it's really simple, but I, I just that's the that's the reminder that like for anyone that is in the red or sees dollars dwindling, right? It's like it goes back to this really simple principle. And I think the other two things that really stood out to me was like I just love how transparent you were with your with your subscribers and your supporters just like being boldly transparent and vulnerable <laughs> it, it just this is where we are and in order to continue this and to have the impact that we want to see in the world we can't just we, we need you to step forward with us we need you to step up with us and i just think that like that transparency is so refreshing around the need i love it 
And, and I think that the third thing, and it, it kind of leads me into a question because I feel like I could connect some dots, but I, I, I'd rather ask you, like, I actually am curious, like, how do you see your work at the global fund for children and the way that you went and identified funded, uplifted, supported local community leaders to solve the need, like the way that you all addressed and grew philanthropy at the local level around the world, how has that continued to inform what you do at Society for Science? So I don't know if you or the readers have ever viewed Steve Jobs' graduation speech at Stanford, really famous. And there's a quote in there, something he said that really stuck with me, he says, it was about him in college taking a calligraphy course. And he took it because he loved it, right? Had no meaning, but he took it. It's not until he started Apple that that calligraphy class became very, very important, right? And he said something, he says, I was never able to, you can never connect the dots looking forward, but you can connect the dots looking backwards. And so I, I look at just my own journey from my childhood to... Global Fund for Children to the Society for Science and 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 see, ah, it's each of those dots that have gotten me to where I am today. I will say something about Global Fund for Children is that at the Society for Science, we have something called the STEM Action Grants that we invest in innovative community-based organizations in the United States that are STEM leaders and STEM organizations led by mm. BIPOC leaders and really diverse organizations at the grassroots. And we're building that. And we just have Regeneron as part of that support, as well as the Simons Foundation and the Science Sandbox. Because when we think about inclusion and access, mm. we have to think about it everywhere. And especially with STEM, we have to think about it at the grassroots. And there's so many extraordinary leaders that need that support and need to be part of mm. a, a ecosystem. So that's kind of, you know, sort of a, a connector. But I, I think it's also about risk-taking in general, right? I was 22 years old. I was 23. Yeah. It's nuts. It's totally nuts. But I had seen it. I had been on the on, on my backpack for with a backpack for a year, and I'd seen local homegrown innovation taking place in people's own backyards. And I said, okay, if it doesn't work, I guess I could still go to med school. But lo and behold, it worked. Yeah. And thank goodness mm-hmm. for Echoing Green. Thank goodness for Richard B. Fisher, the late Richard B. Fisher now. And thank goodness for Mary and her family at the, you know, with the Flora Family Foundation, because those investments Philanthropists have play a very strong role in uplifting leaders to do this work. And, and the best ones are the ones that get out of the way. <laughs> and I've been very grateful to all the supporters, including now EW Scripps's mm-hmm. family members that have come mm. now to support us now. Oh, wow. Supporting us. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been really cool is seeing our founder, founder's family yeah. and their family members coming and embracing our work and science news learning or all the other work we're doing at the society 
that philanthropists play a very, very special role, whether it's the $50 donor or $10 mm-hmm. donor or the million dollar donor. They play a very special role in investing in institutions and their leaders to do that work, right? And I know there's been a lot being said about, do people really trust nonprofits to do this work? If we don't do it, who else will? Mm. Thank you so much. We did not have enough time. I do want to end with one quick question. We ask everyone the same question when we when we end each interview. What does generosity mean to you? Generosity means time, talent, and treasure. Mm. Your time, volunteering. We're about to embark at the International Science and Engineering Fair. We're going to have nearly 1,700 finalists from 60 countries, regions, and territories competing for nearly $9 million in awards. We will have nearly 1,600 volunteers helping us. So volunteerism, so time and talent. And then the $5 gifts to the much, 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 much larger to what Regeneron's done. I just say thank you. The transformative power of generosity. And thanks for all the generosity that you've led your life with. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you. Where can people find you, learn more about you, connect with you, engage with you? So there are a couple of places. One is www.societyforscience.org. Read Science News, www.sciencenews.org. There's also my personal website, which is mayaajmera.com. Beautiful. We'll make sure to link all of those resources in the show notes. So wherever you're listening, head into the show notes and you can connect directly with Maya and all the incredible work that she's doing. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for all the work that you've done over the course of your life and all the good you've done in the world. And it was an honor to have you today. Super Thank incredible. you, Brian, for having me. Thank you. Till next time. And that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Responsive Nonprofit Podcast. We are so grateful for your time. We know how busy you are and consider it a privilege to journey alongside you as you work to make change in our world. We believe in you and would love to hear from you. Projects like this are only as good as the feedback we get, the guests who come on, and all the topics we get to discuss. So if you have an idea, if you know of an impactful guest that must come on the show, or if you want to be a part of the responsive community, check us out over at virtuous.org backslash podcast and join the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite station. Your mission needs your collective talent and passion. So go forth and lead the charge forward and we'll be here cheering you on. We'll see you next week.